Welcome to the Not Just a Pony Ride podcast, presented to you by Hedger University. If you've landed here, you're probably passionate about how horses help people. Whether you're an instructor, therapist, in the business, or have experienced equine assisted services yourself, we're glad you're here. Join us as we talk about the benefits, the science, to-dos, how-tos, and all of the reasons why what we do is so much more than just a pony ride. And now, from the Hetra campus in Gretna, Nebraska, here's your host, occupational therapist Katie King. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today I have Kim Berggren on, and she was just a joy to talk to. Uh, a really, really fun episode today. She has a pile of credentials. So she is a PATH International Advanced Instructor, CTRI. She's a mentor, an advanced instructor, evaluator, and site visitor. And she's been in several different roles. I mean, been on the board of directors, and she's traveled internationally quite a bit to do both site visits and do some instructing. So today we talked about a little bit of everything, but primarily her adventures and her journeys overseas, teaching this industry that we love so much to other countries like South Korea and Germany and France, and um, just about that dynamic, how that went. And as much as she taught, she also learned and gained insight from all of those countries and all of those places that she's been and how that's really shaped her into the professional that she is now. So if you've ever been interested in international travel or how um, our industry looks differently in different countries, this is the episode for you. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Kim. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me in today. Absolutely. I'm excited to hear all about your adventures and life journeys. And why don't we just get started with, you can tell the audience a little bit about you, where you're from and what credentials you have, because there's a lot. I have a handful. Um, so I'm originally from Wisconsin and uh, born and raised. So I'm a Green Bay Packer fan by birth. And uh, I really kind of got started um, with horses from birth, uh, family members, uh, when you have family who have uh, farms, you know, even if extended, you spend a lot of quality time uh, in manure and um, playing with the large animals. And if, if it had four legs, we rode it, you know, the pigs, sheep, cows, horses were a major bonus. Um, so uh, I started pretty young with that. And um, I, I really, you know, I think I was like eight and I was going to be a cartoonist and um, they were impressed. I knew the word. So, um, but that, yeah, you, you're not going to work for Disney and take over, which was my plan at eight, if you can only draw stick figures. So um, I kind of moved on to other other avenues. And I was really looking at like physical therapy in my teenage years. Um, and, and part of that came from my, my work with Special Olympics. So the school district that I went to um, was the hub for special education in our county. So from like kindergarten on, like there were kids in my class. So that was a pretty normal thing. So I just thought they were kind of cool guys and hung out with them or, you know, played with them when other people picked on them. I really didn't like that part. Right. So I never really liked anybody being picked on. So I kind of go to the underdog, which is probably why I've been a Packers fan as long as I have, but we're, we're doing better now. Uh, anyways, um, you, you kind of move on and, and uh, I was in grade school and I was, I walked home and so I'd walk past the gymnasium and, there was all of these kids in their 
you know, somersaulting and whatever they were doing. And later I found out it was Special Olympics. So I was like, well, this is great. And how can I help? So I got involved really pretty young. And uh, by middle school, I was an assistant coach. And by my high school, I was one of the um, head coaches of our, our district. So, and I continued to do that for several years, even after school. It was just a lot of fun. Interestingly enough, I've never coached equestrian sports in Special Olympics because both Michigan and Wisconsin didn't have that as a state sport. So though it's been done on some regional or smaller scales, neither state has it. So it's, I've never coached it that way. So it, it's fantastic that they do it in other places, but I <laughs> never did it. So probably when I was about 16, I read an article uh, about this lady who was a below the elbow amputee who was giving lessons to kids with special challenges and riding. And um, I had gone to my riding instructor uh, and said, hey, do you know about this? She goes, oh yeah, yeah, I do. I know all about it at the place I used to work, which was called the Boys Ranch, which is in Milwaukee. She goes, oh yeah, we did a whole bunch of that sort of stuff. And um, so I called the lady and she kept saying, I'm not NARA certified, I'm not NARA. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, that's the North American Writing for the Handicapped Association that officially changed its name to PATH International. What was that, 2010? So at that point, um, and, and they talked about this place called Chef Center and, and you could go get educated and learn how to do this. So for me, at 16 that that pretty much spun me in this direction and um I went to school for equine management and so I learned how to put the food in one end and scoop the poop out of the other end <laughs> and as fast as possible so I got A's and slinging it so um you know fast forward I went through um the show center ATC course which is an accredited training course which is what they had back then and I started in 95 working on my certifications. So previous to that, I helped a small program in Wisconsin with the whole point of uh, taking over the industry. <laughs> so I've decided I don't necessarily want to take over the industry, but I like playing around in it. Um, it so I went to that. Um, I am now a PATH International Advanced Instructor. I have my CTRI uh, credentialing. I'm a site visitor. I've been an evaluator for um, registered and advanced instructors. I uh, have my ESMHL. So I've done a little bit of everything um, and some of it well. So <laughs> apparently, because you got all the, the letters and credentials to go with it. And that advanced instructor uh, certification is no joke. No joke. That's hard. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it is, uh, it's totally worth it. And, um, you know, I think we were talking when I got, you know, you get done with the education, you're like, I know everything. And then you're like, I don't know anything. Holy, holy Christmas. I can't believe you guys let me loose. So, um, so fortunately I had a lot of really great mentors and people who, who coached me along the, along the way and kept me in, <laughs> kept me in line. God love them. So I think, they retired because of it. But anyways, here we are. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, you and now you're dabbling a little bit in that that mentorship stuff and you're doing a lot of that. And what do you think when you were learning and you were coming up in all of those things, what what types of mentorship things helped you the most? I just had um, Sabra Popoli on last week and she was talking a lot about mentorship, too, and how important it is for our industry. And I just um, I can't get over it, really. Uh, uh, genuinely, um, it is the difference between a, a an okay instructor and that really great, that next up and coming great instructor. 
um, it is the security blanket that you need um, kind of going forward. We, we see when people come in for certifications and things like that, those who had that really solid mentorship and those who had, I'm not saying bad mentorship, but maybe not as much as they needed. And they either, because they wouldn't take the mentorship or the mentors weren't able to give them what they needed going forward. And it, it really kind of sets the tone for those, um, those folks and, and, and how well a certification is gonna go for them you know, in the, in the old process. And I think it's, it's very much going to be the same in the new process going forward, if they don't have good solid mentorship, it, this is not an easy industry to to navigate. So tell me a little bit about, so I um, have been working a lot on in the like introductory instructor, you know, CTRI stuff. What is, what goes into the advanced instructorship that makes it above and beyond? I know it's quite a bit, but can you talk me through that process just a little bit? Um, so you know, at the, at the registered or that, that entry level, you know, you, you understand, you know, how to get on the horse, you know, how to make the horse do the things. Um, you have a, a, an entry level understanding of disabilities, um, and some volunteer management, um, techniques, so on and so forth. And then it's, this is like that times 10. So now it's not just an understanding of the disabilities. You have a deep knowledge of those disabilities, um, the pros, the cons, the contraindications, the indications. You are you are starting to, for lack of a better term, you have those eyes have developed in the back of your head. Um, you, you can have your eyes closed and know what the volunteer students and horses are doing in the barn while you're sitting at your desk, right? It, you know, um, it's, it's just a, a, a significantly deeper understanding of equine management, equine psychology, uh, equine movement, how that affects the body, how the body affects the movement, right? Which comes first, uh, the equipment and the depth of, uh, you know, how that is affecting the, the equine and the client, uh, your clients, uh, you know, like I said, it's not just, oh, they have ADHD and that means they're going to do X, Y, and Z. It's, oh, I can, you start to pick out mm -hmm. those characteristics in that particular individual. And it's not a, a big blanket statement anymore. It's a very small detailed um, piece. Um, it's for a lot of people, I think if you've done CHA, you know, entry level is that level one, level two, right? That's, we want you at a level two to be a, an, an entry level, right? It's that level four or master level CHA is kind of your difference. Mm -hmm. I think that's my opinion. So anyways. that, that experience and that knowledge and that really, really deep understanding is what led you to want to share that knowledge with people overseas. Right. I mean, that's what kind of got you able to be able to teach people in other countries. So tell us about your adventures and oh, yeah. um, what all you've done outside of the country. <laughs> a, a few things. Um, and, and actually, yes, it was because I was going to teach a, a standards course at a region conference where I was introduced or asked or invited um, by Lawyer Ranker, who had already had those kind of contacts because uh, in South Korea, that's that was really probably my first really big overseas adventure um, that was to go and be an instructor kind of role or a mentor role. And uh, uh, she kind of said, hey, I think you would be perfect at this. You have all of the credentials that they want. And having had at that point, 
uh, 15 plus years of mentoring instructors and training uh, that, you know, she felt like I was probably a good person for it. And so when I checked in with all of the people I needed to, like family and spouses and employers and said, hey, totally expected them to say no. Uh, they all said, sure, this is a great experience. Good for you. Um, so, so I left uh, and it was an adventure. And the first thing I would have to say is you have to kind of put any, any preconceived ideas of what you're going to see, just let it go, <laughs> let it go. Um, in, in South Korea's case, what they, they have, they are an incredible country of playing catch up. If you think about when the Korean war was and that entire country was just wiped out. Mm -hmm. um, so in 50 plus years, they are doing some significant makeup and catch up and, and doing the best that they can and, and doing pretty well in most cases. Um, if you think about it, I think it was the 88 Olympics, Summer Olympics were hosted in Seoul. So I had, I worked at the, the facility that they had been hosted at or a portion of the equestrian sports had been hosted at. And to give you a reference in 88, they didn't have an equestrian team. So riding horses was not something they, they were doing. That was very much a, you know, something that Royal people did, or if, or if you were a jockey, you know, for race horsing, right. Racing is big over there. Um, and that was very interesting because I've never seen such mellow horses. Like they're just really? leading them around. They're getting ready to go out to the track and the horses are like, mm, okay. Like they're not, <laughs> I mean, they ran fast, but you're just saying, mm -hmm, okay. Interesting. I was, I was very interesting. So, um, so everything over there has um, an influence, right? And Korea, again, is constantly looking out to other resources. So there is a lot of conversation about how they're coming over here to the United States and purchasing thoroughbreds because they're trying to improve. Uh, they were coming over here and buying quarter horses because they want that, that that's not on their island, right? So you got to come and get it. So where do you go get it? You know, what breeds uh, of horses are most common in Korea? Now thoroughbreds, um, thoroughbreds and Jeju ponies, you know, so, um, uh, hofflingers, they like hofflingers and warm bloods. Uh, so, uh, cause again, they go over to Europe, Austria, anything like that. This episode of the not just a pony ride podcast is sponsored in part by Equiforce. Equiforce is a database that allows you to track every facet of your organization from horse, donor, and volunteer management to scheduling, grant tracking, incident reports, and tracking participant progress too. This is not a one-size-fits-all setup. Instead, Equiforce personally works with you to learn how your facility functions and takes note of your specific terminology so that they can create a unique system to match the needs of your organization. And of course, Equiforce provides an ongoing training and support so that your database can grow with you. Visit them at www.equiforce.com. That's E-Q-U-I-F-O-R-C-E.com. This episode is also sponsored in part by Wooden Horse Corporation and the Equisizer. The Equisizer is a handcrafted, non-motorized mechanical horse used by equine-assisted service programs worldwide. 
The equisizer requires no electricity, tools, or maintenance and can be used indoors or out for evaluations, warm-ups, stretching, mounting, dismounting practice, and volunteer training, beer, and build confidence with students, clients, and volunteers. It can easily carry the weight of two adults, offering the unique option to ride tandemly. To learn more about the equisizer, visit equisizer.com. That's E-Q-U-I-C-I-Z-E-R.com. So do they have a governing, or not a governing body, but, you know, like credentialing body or, you know, like how we have PATH or CHA or we have organizations that help us set standards. Do they have those there? I mean, they they do PATH. They, they started with, and there are, there is a PATH uh, accredited program over there. I believe it's the Samsung arena is what it's called. So, and they do have some PATH international certified instructors there. And they, I know that one of them, two of them predominantly work in more of a therapy-based as in they are, I think they're OTs, I, I think, mm-hmm. um, but they're therapists. So that's kind of really more their focus. Whereas uh, the other one is, I mean, he had gotten his uh, PATH International um, certification and he's working at one of the colleges. So they have college-based education for this as well as um, specialty programs. So when I went, I was hired to go over and help train the trainers. And they have a system that is equivalent to PATH International, but they, they're, they couldn't qualify for a PATH International um, grant program because at that time they don't put actual students on. Mm. And they didn't think that that was a that was a great idea at the time. Uh, they do have a governing body. It's called CATH, which is the Korean Association of Therapeutic Horsemanship. And it's a governing body that is recognized in the country. And they, they mandate continuing education. And they mandate um, that you, you have to take a lot of tests going into it. It's, it's impressive. So I had, uh, the time that I was there, we worked a lot on teaching techniques and mounting techniques and dismounting and equine, equine training and selection was a, was a big one as well. And because of their understanding of what was good and what wasn't, it also helped me appreciate that you don't need to have a big fancy facility with lots of fancy equipment to get people on and off horses to be successful. So um, you just have to have a good plan. And uh, they, they were great. So um, we had, we used a lot of portable blocks and some places had some nice um, ramps and things of that nature, but a lot of portable blocks. Mm -hmm. So also looking at, you know, where the country was it. And this was 2013, I think was the first, very first time I went and I've been back multiple times since, but that was the first time and just how much they they've grown and developed over the, the time, including equine welfare and acknowledging that they need to make those changes or adjustments. Saddle fit, so going back and having to teach saddle fit and form to function is something that they're now catching up on. Not that they had cheap saddles. You don't see, you don't see a lot of cheaply made saddles there. They make, they make the investment into the higher end equipment, but not always understanding how that went together. Um, was the language barrier ever something that was difficult? Like I could see, especially when explaining some of those higher level things like saddle fit and, and that type of stuff, you know, that language barrier, was that ever difficult? 
Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was very fortunate because unlike the United States, other countries mandate English as a second language or they mandate a second language. Mm-hmm. So there was almost always somebody in the group who at least understood English. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a translator all the time. They really did not like to let me loose. So that was good. Um, and actually a lot of my, a lot of my teaching or training came after the class because of cultural barriers were more of an issue than language barriers. Um, I probably spent a, I had a 15 minute conversation with a monk when I was out touring and her words were cool breeze. And I, I could say, yes. <laughs> uh, and hello, <laughs> and goodbye. But uh, you can get around those pieces. Uh, it, it was more of the, some of the cultural things. So it is not, it, it's, it's not nice or polite if you question the teacher in that mm-hmm. culture, because that means the teacher didn't do a good job. And in the US, we're like, give me questions. So I know that you understand. Right. And if not, I want to make sure you do. So often I would, when I figured one of my classes, a lot of them had studied here in the US. So they understood that culture. Dynamic, and so yeah. that dynamic, so they were much better about it. And uh, they asked some questions. And the other group, which I saw, it, um, they were full-time students. There were a couple in there that under, most of them understood English or at least had something coming of it, even if they couldn't speak it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were more likely to ask me questions after class when I was out in the in the barn area. If I was getting a horse out or I was doing anything, then I got questions. They would more find of an who, informal setting. Yeah, yeah, then it was okay. So it was it was an experience. It was a great experience. So what other, you went to, let's see, Germany and France as well, correct? Correct. How did did those experiences differ from each other? Um, Well, first of all, you go to Germany and that's where it starts, right? Like that's where all of this stuff starts. And um, they have incredible, I mean, their, their equine welfare is, it's pretty strict. Like there's a lot of rules uh, and not bad rules, that's just things you have to know. So here in the United States, <clears throat> um, you know, you go to a schooling show and you see little kids out on their horses or, or adults out on their horses. Uh, in Germany, you have to, in order to um, show at a certain level without side reins on your horse, you have to go to a class and you have to prove that you know, uh, you know, blood pressure, respiration, that you understand basic feeding, basic care, parts of the horse, uh, uh, some some working knowledge of, of saddle fits, uh, of how to make the, and you have to go out and prove that you can actually make the horse do that stuff before you can go showing. Now you can do that privately, but if you want to go to a show, you have to prove that you've done this, that you have some experience and you don't get to you don't get to just go to the next level because you're bored at this one. You have to go and take another test and there's a written test and a, and a practical test. So it was very interesting. And I really, I mean, I appreciated what they were trying to say. And it was a lot on the equine welfare. So how do they manage that with regards to therapeutic writing? Cause obviously we put 
kids and adults on horses that don't have, you know, those high level abilities and equine knowledge. So then do they manage that completely separately? Um, they have therapeutic riding instructors and, um, and it's a pretty significant process to get certified as one of those. I would assume. Um, and, uh, and they do a lot more one-on-one. They, there's, there's no such thing as group lessons, you know, per se. Um, you might get a couple of kids, a couple of clients at once. Um, if you have, if you're working with a school group, but even Mm -hmm. then, and we have volunteers and volunteerism in, in the United States is very much a part of our culture, which is not necessarily a part of any other culture the same way. Interesting. So same, same thing in, in South Korea, you know, getting the volunteers. So they had much smaller group. You didn't have, you didn't have 10 kids. You had two in a, in a TR setting mm-hmm. um, and cause they could manage that. Uh, or a one-on-one because they could manage that. And um, same thing in Germany, a lot of one-on-ones so that the instructor can have that more hands-on piece. Mm -hmm. So it's um, very interesting. It's very interesting. So then we talked a little bit before too about just how different their equine management is like in their therapeutic barns, Mm -hmm. you know, and that and how much they do with much less space than we do. Right. Oh, absolutely. That, I think that's the, that's the other thing that when you go someplace else, you have to kind of throw that out of your brain of what you must have. Um, other countries don't have the same luxury we do. I mean, the United States is a massive, there are countries that fit in Texas. So if you, you kind of put that in perspective, uh, so, you know, here we have regulation for how many acres you have per, per equine. And they have some things like that, but not to the same extent. So there's a lot of pasture management, rotation, um, exercising. Arenas are not 100 by 200. So you could get a lot of people in there. You have much smaller arenas, a lot of outdoor arenas, that sort of stuff. Um, exercise programs. It's, you know, like you... If you lease a horse in, in Germany, there are expectations and that you're going to show up on your, on your days to clean the stall and feed the horse and make sure it gets exercised and, and whatever that you deem is appropriate. So those are all of those things. But yeah, I'm, I'm always fascinated with how much they could do in such a small space from, their, from taking care of their animals and they all looked great to um, working with these clients and not having, like you said, big fancy lifts or anything like that um, because it wouldn't fit in that space anyways. Right. So making it work with what they have. Doing more with less. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when you were in Germany and France, did you do um, instructing with them or was it, you know, kind of observation based or what kinds of things did you do there? Um, So in Germany, I was there kind of, I did some, I did a lot of observing. I did a little bit of teaching, um, just kind of some demo teaching and then did a a couple of small clinics of, you know, here's what we do and here's what Mm -hmm. I do. And this is, and, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was from a, and basically I was coming at it from a U.S. perspective because clearly we, you know, I do things Things very differently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, When I went to France, I was there as a site visitor. So uh, it was purely observational. Uh, Right. And so I got to go as a site visitor and, and see this facility and look at their programming and what they were calling therapeutic riding 
and really kind of what the services were that they were providing were more mental health. They had all of the right professionals, they were doing all of the right things. And it was, again, amazing what they were doing in this space with these animals, with not all of the, you know, they had a ramp, you know, so they had that kind of stuff. And it was a beautiful, it's, it is a beautiful facility. So it had been designed for, for different purposes. It had been like a training facility. So other trainers and riders could come in from all over and train there and that didn't work out. And these guys stumbled across it and, and, and made it amazing. It's amazing place. So um, Helene and Eric. Uh, so it was, and I met them actually at a, <laughs> I had met them once at a, at a regional national conference is where I met them the first time. But I think I actually um, got connected to them because of a friend who bumped into me while I was at a beef cattlemen's association uh, promoting therapeutic riding. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. I have no uh, idea why or how that happened, but I love that. That's a whole nother story, but <laughs> anyways. Uh, so yeah. So it was like, Hey, my friend wants to do this and she's in France and she had lived here and now she's, you know, she's from France. She's back home. Can you, can you help her out and got her connected with some people who could help her mentor her and things like that. And then, um, it was really great when that, when the opportunity came and they said, would you be willing to go? I'm like, oh yes, please, by all means. Uh, so that was a, it was phenomenal. And again, just doing a lot with a little, uh, beautiful facilities. Um, equine welfare was uh, again, different. It was phenomenal. The animals looked great. And, you know, France, again, she had a lot more space. So you kind of mm -hmm. could, you felt a little bit more normal or if you will. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, you go, then I go to Germany and I'm expecting these big, huge places and you're like, nope, they're not huge. Oh, okay. And you know, the concept of how far somebody will travel. I mean, it's not a, you know, you think about all of the people we talk to and they're like, Oh, I have clients that drive an hour, you know, to come to us because this is what we do or X, Y, and Z. And um, there, they're like, oh, I had to drive 20 minutes. It was terrible. Like, I have a client who drives a total of 20 minutes. You're like, really? <laughs> like, like, that's a big deal. Like, that's not, that's not normal. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. And uh, Korea, Korea, there's a lot of travel, right? So if they're not living in the city. Uh, they're, they're probably traveling to you. So um, subways and buses and all of that mm -hmm. sort of stuff, because, well, they, well, there's a lot of cars there too, but not a, a lot of people don't own them because of the cost. So right. um, it was a totally different thing. Uh, Germany has, uh, Germany and France, you know, have something similar with, you know, like the ADA here. Uh, Korea does as well, but it it's newer. So those are things that you kind of don't even think about either when you go to other countries is um, when we talk about and we have a lot of work to do on this. So please don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here because mm -hmm. we, we really are not where we need to be. But if you look at, you know, where we were and where we are in, in disability acts and things of that nature and trying to bridge some of those gaps, you don't realize how far we've come until you go someplace that, you know, accessibility is not Accessibility there. is still not there. Yeah. And uh, how they manage it is great on or culturally how they're um accepting it so um and though you think about some of these countries where up until you know 30 years ago really still hiding people you didn't you didn't take your person out if they were disabled um, mm -hmm. or different and mental health 
right? Like that's that's still new. Um, things like ADHD are still new and learning and evolving. Autism, new learning and evolving. Mm-hmm. And these were things that, you know. Yeah, and finding, I mean, identifying, you know, identifying the disability and then, and that is one thing. And then the next step is understanding what can help it. And then beyond that is, okay, here's a, here's a specialized service and actually accessing it. So I could imagine that has a long way to go. Yeah. And again, they've come leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. They do do, they do learn quickly. They do observe from around them and assimilate it quickly. So that it's impressive. Some of the stuff they're doing, you're like, wow, we, we should be doing that. We're so far to go. We have so Mm -hmm. far to go. Right. So totally different. different. Yeah. Where are, is there anywhere else that you would like to go or what's next on your bucket list for international travel? (laughs) Um, Everywhere. So I, I, you know, obviously I would, I would love to go see uh, New Zealand and Australia. I mean, who doesn't want to go see that? Mm -hmm. Um, um, I would go back to Greece. I I did go there for an international conference uh, once and that was fantastic. I'd go back to, (laughs) I go back to Greece Um, really pretty much anywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty, I don't know that I've said, oh, if I never get anywhere, but this Mm -hmm. one place. So um, no, I just really like to travel and see what uh, the the other cultures, really, however the people live, um, what's, what the norms are dispelling what our preconceived ideas are, right? It broadens our, our thoughts and the way we do things. And it, it helps us not get in such a rut with the way things should be when you see how other people can do it. And I think that's wonderful. Absolutely. And that was a, that was a huge takeaway is, you know, we very much get stuck in and you have preconceived ideas of what somebody or what some culture is like. And then you get there and you're like, well, this isn't at all what I thought it was Mm -hmm. right. Like they're very warm. They're very friendly. They're very kind. They're very worried about, they're very worried about if I like the food, you know, what American takes you to a restaurant and the restaurant cares if you like what's on their menu, you're going to eat it or you're not. And the waitress is the only one who's going to be like, Hey, am I going to get a good tip out of this? Uh, I, you know, I was in South Korea and the, we went, we went to this restaurant specifically because of the food that they had. It was a lot of seafood. And if you don't like a lot of seafood, you're probably going to struggle. But there's a lot of seafood. And we went there specifically and the ladies, I mean, I was at the, I'm way away from anything where most Americans show up and the, the ladies, the cooks, the waitresses, they kept coming back to make sure that I was okay with the food. And should they go find something else in the kitchen? And we're like, no, please, please don't, don't take a stop. Right. Like it you was, you see what I eat in America. This is wonderful. It's fantastic. Like I'm eating stuff out of a, you know, box that's frozen and breaded and has, you know, the Vandekamp guy on it. So this is great. Um, So yeah, it was, it, that was just a very different experience. It was a a different experience to go someplace where I, I was not the normal. I didn't speak the language. I didn't look like anybody else. I had small children that would run up to me just to say hello because oh. I was different and mm-hmm. then also right and others where I would wave and they'd cry <laughs> so you're like hmm, I don't know what that means that effect on people <laughs> I, I, apparently I do right uh, I, I think I do everywhere so it doesn't really matter but that it was still strange it was children it's usually adults so <laughs> but um yeah so that like that whole understanding or perspective of what it's like to be someplace that you you don't quite fit and 
you know, I'm a pretty easygoing and apparently I assimilate well, but uh, I actually had a harder time coming back and eating the food when I came home than I did going. So uh, I now seek out good Korean food. Uh, but, right. So anyways, it, but it's, it's that same idea. You know, I could go to, to, to Europe, right, Germany and walk around. And as long as I didn't say anything, nobody knew who I was mm-hmm. uh, uh, until somebody would speak to me. And then I just, and, and that puts you in that same mindset of as a therapeutic running instructor, ultimately we have to learn somebody else's language all the time mm-hmm. and they have to try to learn ours. We just have to be quick enough to pick up on what that is so that we can meet somewhere in the middle to make that happen. And I think as an instructor, I became a far more, in, I've always been intuitive. I think it really helped me develop that intuitive, you know, intuitiveness of what were my clients really trying to say? Not what are the words that they were using? What were they really trying to say from that experience? Yeah. And um, because you don't need words. I mean, I, I clearly, I taught in Korea to children who probably didn't understand what I was saying and they still did it you know, we still got somewhere. There was still some, you know, smiles and they were steering. So we got where we needed to go with me, not really having a very big vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So, and, and using an interpreter, what didn't always work in that case. Yeah. Well, what would, what would you say to someone who, who wants to do international travel in this industry or wants to be a part of that? Um, you know, what did, did you get out of it? What would you tell someone who wants to do that? I would tell anybody who has the opportunity to take it, um, make sure you have realistic expectations. So like I said, uh, space is different in other places. Uh, Rules are different in other places. Um, Understanding of equine welfare and management are different. And depending on, you know, you have a choice of um, condemning or um, contributing to growth. And I think as long as you kind of go with that mindset that you're willing to share what you know, as well as willing to learn what they have to share to you, because I think everybody has something to teach. I think everybody, mm-hmm. you never stop learning. And if you're, if you're like, I'm going to go to this place, I'm going to show them everything I know, and they're going to be great. And I have nothing to learn from them, then it's not going to be a success. Right. So, uh, but it, that's absolutely hands down. If you have a chance, do it. I mean, I, I would do it again. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. So how would someone get into that opportunity? Like if I don't have the opportunity or the, you know, anything like that, but I need to build connections to do some international travel, what would you suggest? Huh. Um, you know, watch, watch the path international website. I mean, it's mm-hmm. every once in a while job offers pop up, uh, reach out, um, reach out to some of those international organizations, such as like, you know, Hedy's the big federation, but just kind of reaching out and, and seeing what's out there and available. Uh, the, the connections are a little tricky at first, but kind of once yeah. you, once you're there, you just got to get plugged into the right places and get exactly. Going. Yeah. Very good. Well, Kim, this was awesome. I loved hearing about all your travels. I, I have never been overseas and I've always been curious about how they do um, writing and, you know, therapeutic horsemanship and stuff over there. So this was wonderful. I learned a lot. So I think our audience will too. Wonderful. Great. Nothing else. I hope it was entertaining. It was. So as we close, I always close my podcast with the same question. So you can tell me about either if you've ever had a heart horse in your life 
or if you have a kindred spirit or something you feel uh, an animal or something you feel represents you? Uh, probably the Tasmanian devil. Um, <laughs> um, that, that might be one of them. But uh, I, yes, I do have that hard horse. I have a, uh, a wonderful American quarter horse and I, I got lucky to, to I, I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, he was a young two-year-old and he was in the barn where I was and uh, with my trainer and I played crash dummy a little bit and really got to see him grow and develop and really, really connected with him, which was unusual. And um, when the, the people were, you know, they had great plans for him and uh, then they decided they didn't have the, the immediate resources necessary. So they were going to they were going to sell him and I just so happened to have that money. So it was, it was meant to be. And mm-hmm. so he is now, gosh, 20, 21, 20, 21, 20, 22. He's 20, he's 22, 23. So I'm really bad. I always have to look at the paperwork because in my brain, he's forever 10. Right. And, uh, right. And he's done a little of everything and uh, we've done a little of everything and nothing well. So I got him as a reigning prospect and we did a little bit of that and we tried Western pleasure and that was painful for me that was awful um so it's just it's too no I can't go I don't think that's slow he can I don't uh so we've done a little jumping trail riding a little gymkhana whatever comes up so he's great all around good boy he's an all-around good guy so yeah very good well Kim thanks again and uh don't be a stranger hopefully we'll have you on again here soon ah love to be back on thanks Kate This podcast is presented by Hetra University, an educational arm of the Heartland Equine Therapeutic Riding Academy. Hetra University's mission is to provide high-quality educational offerings to our participants and the equine-assisted services community. Craving more content like this? We invite you to check out our series of webinars and much, much more over at hetrauniversity.org. If you'd like to help us work toward our mission, you can make a donation by clicking on the link in the show notes below or visit us at hetra.org. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Again, my biggest thanks to you all for helping Hetra change lives one stride at a time.